Romans chapter 1. Would you look there with me tonight, please? Romans chapter 1. I apologize for the late notice on uh, starting a new series, but had the Lord told me earlier, I'd have let you know earlier. <laughs> it's just that way, all right? I told everybody just about the same time that he told me, so... I've been busy for some time praying, asking the Lord what direction to take after we did our little uh, question and answer time. And uh, this is where we ended up. The Lord showed me some things in the book of Romans. And it's been a long time since I've done just uh, sort of an expository look at a book. And so I call this growth spurt. That was the name that I felt like the Lord laid on my heart. Because the book of Romans deals with every major thing there is out there when it comes to the scriptures. So, um, is Isaac helping me out back there? He's helping me out. He's amening me. Yeah. Um, he's going through a growth spurt himself now that I think of it. So that's very applicable. But uh, uh, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to, well, let me back up a minute and tell you something uh, about your pastor um, I grew up in a church with a pastor who was an expository preacher. Now, he didn't use points. He didn't alliterate. None of that stuff like I try to do with you. Uh, so I never knew when he was going to stop. <laughs> the points kind of help keep me on track. You may think they're for your benefit, but they keep me on track. I know that tonight when I get to number five, I'm done. And probably when I get to number three, we're going to be done for the night. I don't know. Uh, but what he would do is he would read a little bit of scripture and then he would expound on it. Dr. Wendell Zimmerman was his name. If you've ever heard of him, I don't know. But actually, um, uh, Pastor T served on staff with Jerry Falwell. Dr. Zimmerman gave Dr. Falwell his only other position ever in ministry. Dr. Falwell was Dr. Zimmerman's youth pastor when he was in Kansas City, Missouri. He started a church there. He and Dr. Falwell were very, very close. Well, Dr. Zimmerman uh, would take and read the scripture and he would expound on it. He would tie in what it said with other portions of the Bible. And again, not offering a lot of organized points, but just it was rich and it was really kind of cool. Now, when I was a kid, I didn't get a lot out of it. I got to tell you, you know, uh, I, I'd, I'd listen to him. And I, again, I'd think, well, now, when's he going to be done? Because we don't have any points. I don't know. If he got three points or 72 points, I don't know. But, uh, but then as I served on staff with him, which I did many years later, he was my ordaining pastor. When I served on staff with him, uh, I just really appreciated what he did. What it, what it did indirectly in my life and what I hope will happen in yours is it taught me to read the scripture slowly. Have you ever been sitting there listening to a message and all of a sudden you say, I never even saw that before. Well, that's what expository teaching does. You, you stop and you say, wait a minute. I never actually paid attention to that. Sometimes we're so busy reading through it, we don't actually read what it's talking about. So, so what we're going to do is we're going to sort of read through, we're going to stop, we're going to stutter, if you will, as we read. And, and we're going to talk about what Paul is talking about in this chapter we may not make it all the way through chapter one. I've given you a brief outline. All that really is, is a guide. We're going to pick apart a lot of different things as we go through here. 
And if, if you get nothing else out of it, maybe you will develop your own method of reading the scripture through slowly in your own private, private devotional life, okay? Uh, at first, I was going to do this in the summer. So I had kind of a theme about summer growth. And then I started realizing uh, there's 16 chapters in the book of Romans. And there is no way I can finish this in a summer. So we're just going to kind of take our time and go through. If I feel like you're really getting bored, then I'll speed up. And uh, if you stay with me, we'll just pick it apart. There's a lot of great stuff in the book of Romans. I hesitate to use the word doctrine in today's world, but it is doctrinally rich. And if you're looking for a good discipleship class, welcome to it. We call it growth spurt tonight. It's a discipleship class. That's what the book of Romans really does. And so we're going to go ahead and dive in, uh, beginning with the first word in the book, Paul. I, I like this because Paul usually signed his letters right at the beginning. We always sign ours where? At the end. Has that ever bothered you? Uh, when you get a letter, where do you look usually first? For a return address, you try to find out who is it from. We kind of do things backwards today. They removed that question when they wrote letters back in the day when Paul wrote. So he would usually put his name right up front. He didn't do that when he wrote the book of Hebrews. That's what has led us to believe perhaps with some doubt that he wrote the book. But if you know the history behind the book and the content of the book, you will note that it's very Pauline. And by that, I don't mean it was his sister who wrote it, but it's very much like Paul. And he was appealing to the Hebrews who, by the way, did not like him. So you've got to keep that in mind. And that's probably why he didn't sign the book. But I do believe he wrote the book. But we're really not talking about the book of Hebrews, are we? We're talking about the book of Romans. So let's begin again. We're talking about the Apostle Paul. Notice what it says. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now let's pause. Here's a good time to sort of stop and stutter, so to speak, as we, as we go. Uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you five key words through the course of the night. Again, we may not get but just to a few of them. But the first word is the word servant. The servant. Now Paul calls himself a bond servant. Now, some of you may be familiar with that term. Others of you may not be. It is entirely possible and probable that Paul is actually referring to something that we read about way back in the Old Testament. In ancient Hebrew times, you had a servant, a slave, if you will, that served their master. The master uh, would speak to that uh, servant and anything that master needed done, the servant would take care of. And, and every now and then, uh, the year of Jubilee, for instance, and at other time periods, depending on the circumstances, a person who had these servants would set them free. He would offer them liberty. Well, uh, if a servant decided that he loved his master, that he loved living there and serving that person, and if this servant had by that time married uh, someone and had children and their whole family served that particular property owner, then they could choose to remain a servant and it was known as a bond servant. What the Bible tells us they would do, and this is found in Exodus chapter 21 and verse number 5, but if the servant plainly says, I love my master, 
my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. So what the Bible is telling us is a bondservant is somebody who has been offered their freedom. But they have chosen out of love for their master to remain a servant forever. So Paul identifies himself right away as that. He says, Paul, a bondservant, somebody who was given freedom. He knows exactly what he's, been, what he's received. He's received freedom, but somebody who said, I'm going to serve my Lord out of love, out of love. Now let me pause for a moment and say something to you I think is important, and, and let's, let's discuss this a moment. Christianity is really the only religion because it is faith-based and not work-based, work-based, that we could say this about, that we serve out of love. We don't serve because we think we're earning God's favor. As a matter of fact, the contrary uh, to that, the Bible tells us that we received grace. And so it's not a matter of, of earning God's favor, it's a matter of having undeserved favor by God. So to be a, a servant of God means that we serve him not because we have to, not because he stands over us with a whip of some kind or a, a big mallet and pops us whenever we don't behave. It's not that way with God. We serve him because we love him. We serve him because of what he's done for us. And we know that by serving him, we are the more blessed as a result of it. And so Paul identifies himself as this type of a bond servant. And that's the way that uh, we really ought to live our lives as well. So he goes on, he says, called to be an apostle. An apostle. Now an apostle, the word means sent ones. The closest thing we could come to the definition of an apostle today is the word missionary. When we think about a missionary, we think of somebody sent. One who is sent. And so the Great Commission enters our mind. What is the Great Commission again? Well, that's where, of course, God told his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So what we have here is we have a bondservant who is serving God out of love, not because he has to, but because he desires to be a servant of the Savior. And, and then he calls himself an apostle. And this apostle, uh, the, the two qualifying factors of an apostle are they had to have been taught personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. Their information was firsthand. It didn't come from anybody else. They didn't attend a seminary where all of those guys taught them what it was that Jesus had said. They had to be taught personally by Jesus. The second qualification for an apostle is they had to have witnessed the resurrected Savior with their own eyes. Now, Paul was an apostle born out of due time, he referred to. Uh, Paul was an apostle that followed those other 12. Remember those original 12? And then, of course, Judas uh, hung himself after the betrayal and they replaced him with Matthias. They still had 12. So the apostle Paul was the 13th apostle. Now, I'm not going to spend tonight talking with you about what do you do with the 12 seats that are reserved for the apostles. 
does Matthias get the seat or does Paul get the seat? I, I, I'm not going to get into all of that with you tonight, but I'll throw that out so that you can study it yourself for those of you that might be interested in that sort of study. I will tell you that Paul was different than all the other apostles in that the other apostles primarily ministered to Israel and Paul was a, an apostle to who? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. So Paul's writings are to the Gentiles. Here we find he's writing to the saints who are at Rome. And, and these are not Jews, although some of them may have been in their past. They are, they are those who came to know Christ and they're living there in Rome. And Paul has not yet been there. Schofield tells us that the date of this book is about 60 AD. So if you wanted to write that down. I like something else Schofield says about Paul and his writings in the book of Romans. He said... Paul originates nothing, but unfolds everything. That's an interesting statement. What he's saying is, these are not the doctrines of Paul. These are not the teachings of Paul. These are the teachings of Jesus Christ, and Paul unfolds them. And that's an important thing for us to remember. As I look around the room tonight, we have a lot of people who teach, a lot of people who lead in our church. And that's a good thing to remember, that you don't originate the truth, you unfold it. You share what God has said, not what you have to say. Amen? And I think that's an important point. So Paul is saying that I am an apostle. I want you to notice he said, I've been called to be an apostle. This is not a position that one takes onto themselves. This is not something he just volunteered to do. Most of you that know the story of Paul's conversion know that Paul was actually going to persecute Christians, people of the way, they were called, whenever God spoke to him and interrupted him on the road to Damascus. So Paul did not volunteer to become an apostle. He was called to be one. God put a call on his life. I don't know what kind of emphasis you place on that personally. I do know that the Bible talks about uh, in uh, the book of 1 Timothy, those who desire the office of a bishop desire a good thing. I also know that Isaiah seems to have answered a voluntary call. And, and I, I do believe that when God said to Isaiah, who shall I send and who will go for us? He said, here am I, Lord, send me. It's not like God came to Isaiah and said, Isaiah, I want you to go and do this like he did with Moses. Are you following me? That's what he did. Moses, I'm going to send you. Moses said, not me. No, sir, not me. I can't even talk. What do you mean, me? No, no, I'm going to send you. I'm going to use you to do this. Isaiah was just conversing with God. God said, who will I send? Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Now, it's not wrong to volunteer to serve God. That's a great thing. But occasionally, you need to understand that God does call people. And when he calls them, that's a very significant type of a calling. And God is still calling people today. He's calling them to the mission field, calling them to the pastorate, calling them into evangelism, calling them into various sorts of ministries. So Paul said, I've been called to be an apostle. And then he uses this phrase, separated to the gospel of God. Separated to the gospel of God. The word separated is interesting. It has its, its meaning uh, actually derived from a term used to describe the horizon. So think for a moment as you look out across the ocean, we're just five miles from there. Some of you are there right now. You've been there the last 30 minutes <laughs> in your minds. 
But you, you look out across the ocean and you see that line. I love the way Job puts it where uh, God talks about in that text, were, were you there when I stretched the line upon it? Were you there when I made the horizon? And so when you look out there on the horizon, what you see is a separation. You see the separation of the ocean and the sky. Or if you're looking out in Texas, you see the back of your head, it's so flat, some people say. Um, but not quite. But you see the horizon. Some of you get that on the way home. Oh, I got that. You see the horizon. And what the horizon does is it separates one from another. And what Paul's saying is, I have been separated to the gospel. When a person is ordained, what, what actually the term ordained means is to be separated. It's to be consecrated, devoted to. When a person gets ordained, what they're saying is, I have been called by the Lord and I am now going to be separated unto the gospel. This is what I do. This is who I am. This is where I'm at. I hesitate to, I hesitate to say this to you, but I'm going to say it. I would preach the gospel whether you paid me or not. Amen. And I have. I've worked as many as three jobs at one time starting a church. I don't do this as a job. It's not a job to me, it's a calling to me. And so I think that's significant and I think it's important that we understand there's a difference in being separated to the cause of the gospel and, and just simply sharing the gospel, which we all ought to do. But Paul is saying, I've been separated to this. I've been consecrated, set aside for. This is who I am, this is what I do, he is saying. These things set the borders of my life. Now listen to this phrase. The gospel determines the borders in my life. That's what he's saying. In order for me to do the gospel, to present the gospel, it's important that I go where the gospel is needed. It's important that I go where the gospel it will be received. It's important that I don't waste my time in an area where it's not going to be received. And that's the way Paul lived. When you look at Paul's life, you understand better that phrase, that I am separated to the gospel of God. Now the word gospel is an interesting word and this actually brings me to point number two with you. Already we're at point two. And the word is subject. So we have the servant in verse one, the bond servant, having received his freedom, choosing to love the Lord and serve the Lord. And then we have the subject. The gospel of God is the subject of the entire book of Romans. The whole book. And Paul is saying this, I've been separated under the gospel. Now the word gospel, as many of you already know, literally means good news. It is good news. And it's a wonderful thing to share with people. I've got some good news for you. The good news is that Jesus came, he died, he rose from the dead, and he's coming back. That's the good news. Now the reason he died is because he loves you so much he gave himself for our sin. And you can have forgiveness of your sin by trusting in what Jesus did. In what? In the gospel. That's the gospel message. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1 and reading through to verse 4. He said, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. Preached, by the way, just simply means to proclaim. I proclaimed this. Keep in mind that he's not originating it. He's unfolding it. Remember? It's not his creation. He's just telling you what God did, what Jesus did. 
And that's an important thing to remember. I preach this to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Now let me pause a moment. Remember what we said an apostle was? An apostle is somebody who had to have been taught personally by Jesus Christ. Now Paul is laying claim to that. He said, I'm only sharing with you that which I have been shared, that which Jesus has shared with me. He taught me, and now I'm teaching you. That was the, the relationship of the apostle versus just a disciple. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. I'll wait on somebody to answer their phones. Could I get everybody to silence your phones? We've had three of them go off since I started. If you could just take a quick look and make sure, that'll help me out. Your pastor has a little bit of ADD. And uh, things, things can be quite uh, distracting from time to time. So if it's the Lord calling, leave it on. <laughs> so Paul said, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, here's what Paul is saying. Let me give you the gospel. He said, I've, I've taught you the gospel. What you have heard from me, many of you have received. And because of that, you've been saved. That Jesus came according to the gospel. He, he died. He was buried according to the, the scriptures. He rose from the dead according to the scriptures. So what he keeps coming back to is what the scriptures have said. About the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, what scriptures was he talking about? Because his writings were not in existence yet. He was in the process thereof. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus. Concerning the indwelling or the enfleshing. And then the, uh, the living, the dying, the resurrection of Jesus. Now let's go back to Romans 1 for just a minute. And let's read again, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Now let me pause a moment. By now, what expository teaching does is as we're reading this, everything we've been talking about is flooding through our minds. That's what expository teaching does. You'll, you'll never read that word bondservant again and think of it any other way. It's going to help you understand better what he's saying every time he uses it in the scripture it will change the way that you view and, and look at that. So uh, let me commend you for being here for the study. I know this is not usually when you advertise this type of a series, a book study, people are not usually enthralled about that. Now, if you talk about certain subjects that they're interested in, they'll flock to that sometimes. But believe me, we'll talk about virtually every subject there is by the time we get through chapter 16 of Romans. There'll be very little left out, if anything at all. Uh, so... Uh, but then he says this, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, what's he referring to? The Old Testament, the prophets, the law and the prophets, the law being the first five books of the Old Testament that Moses wrote and the rest being lumped in with the law and the prophets. Now the prophecies in the Old Testament for Jesus Christ, 
they say, and I haven't counted them personally, so forgive me uh, if you think less of me for not going through and saying, oh, there's one, and, and writing it down, but there are some 400 of them. 400 references in the Old Testament to the coming of Jesus Christ and about Jesus Christ. 400 references. So here's what Paul is saying. I'm going to talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that one who you've already heard about because the scriptures have prophesied about him. There are some 400 prophecies about Jesus already mentioned in the Old Testament writings. So then he goes on, he said, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Now, what he's saying is, we know from the writings of John, John chapter 1, verse 14, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know that his birth was not his beginning. Would you agree? We know that Jesus had no beginning. Because as the word, he is eternally past. He has the attribute of eternity. He is eternal. So Jesus, Paul is saying, is this one who according to the flesh is the seed of David. In other words, God chose to use the lineage of David to bring about the Messiah. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. He's called the branch of Jesse in one particular passage. And so we, we know that this is who he's talking about is Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, and declared, by the way, this is one of my favorite verses. If you've sat under my ministry, you've heard this verse a lot. Verse 4 of Romans 1, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. If you are ever discussing the deity of Jesus with anyone, if you're ever into a debate with anybody concerning whether Jesus was God or not, if you ever get into that kind of, a, a, of an argument, ask them a simple question. And the simple question is, what do you do with the resurrection of Jesus? What do you do with it? We know from historical records, even outside the realm of the Bible, Josephus, for instance, wrote about Jesus, but there were many other historians that wrote about him. We know that he existed. We know that he was crucified. We know that he was buried, but there is no body ever that has been discovered or found. The Bible actually records for us that more than 500 at one particular time witnessed him in his resurrected form. Not one of them disputed that. Not one of them said, no, no, not me. I hadn't seen that. Some believe that the very martyrdom of the apostles, the very fact that the early Christians were willing to be put to death in such horrible ways, the reason they were willing to do so was because they had already seen Jesus and you couldn't threaten them with death. There is no other explanation for what, what uh, they did or, or what we would have here. So the single solitary act of the resurrection of Jesus declares him to be the Son of God, that he's God, risen from the dead. That's a powerful verse of Scripture, and that's why uh, that verse means so very much to me. Some have said that the gospel of Jesus includes the revealed one, the resurrected one, and the reigning one. 
And you might add to that in the list of your outline, the returning one, because indeed he is going to come again. There's no question about that. Look at verse five with me. Through him, well, we're blazing along, aren't we? We're already in verse five. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Now let me pause a moment because whether you realize it or not, what we just read was the Great Commission. What he's just talked about was what typically we call the Great Commission. The apostleship that he refers to is the fact that we have been sent. As my Father has sent me, even so I send you. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're to carry the gospel around the world. We do this as a local church in a couple of ways. Uh, we're, uh, has Amara left yet, by the way? She left this morning. We need to remember her in our prayers. She's headed to the Philippines. So we've sent out a young lady to the Philippines. That's one way we do it. Another way we do it is through the giving of our money to missions where we take on missionaries who are going into other parts of the world. And we're sharing the gospel in these parts of the world. If you're new to our church, we have uh, just on the other side of this wall over here, uh, a hall of prayer. And there are prayer letters there from our missionaries. And we encourage you, I encourage you, stop by those and read them and write down some email addresses take a picture of it with your iPhone and and or whatever phone you have uh, I don't know if your flip phone will do it some of you but uh, take a picture and and uh, and write down the address and send them an email let them know I am praying for you and and that's how we do the Great Commission but what Paul is saying is he said uh, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Obedience to the faith means that we are obedient in carrying the gospel. Remember, that's our subject. We are obedient in carrying the gospel to all nations. We carry the word, the good news, everywhere. We have received grace, he said. Through him, through Jesus... We have received grace. Well, what is grace? Most of us have defined that as undeserved favor, unmerited favor. That is, God favored us when there was nothing in us worthy of being favored. The grace of God. We will talk a lot about the grace of God and the gospel of God uh, throughout this book as we study it in the book of Romans. But uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 8, we have a very uh, plain verse of Scripture, actually verse 8 and 9, so a couple of verses for you. The Bible reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Let me pause a moment. By grace, by what? Undeserved favor. Grace through faith. That is, you had to exercise faith. Don't, don't ignore that portion of it because we didn't deserve what Christ did for us or the fact that he offers us salvation, but we must exercise faith. So by grace, through faith, the Bible says, we've been saved. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There is no room for boasting in our, there's not one of us that can say, look at what I did. I, I trusted Christ. You know, why don't you, why aren't you as good as I am? What, what does that mean? You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. None of us deserve it. It's only by grace 
that we can even call on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's undeserved favor. And then number three on our list, if you want to write it down, we're going to give you the main point of the saints. And that picks up in verse 7. So, so far we've talked about the servant and the subject of the book, and then now the saints. These are the recipients, those who received the book, his target group, if you will. And look at what he says to them in verse number 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Now let me pause just a moment. It does not say, as other writings of the Apostle Paul often do, to the church at. And I find that interesting. Perhaps because it is not organized yet. Maybe they're spread all out. And he's just writing. It's more of a broad scope he's writing to them. It's okay if you refer to them as the church. I don't think that's a problem as far as understanding that God's people make up the church. But apparently they're not organized to that point. And so he's writing to the saints who are at Rome. And that's an interesting phrase. Uh, I would doubt that many of us would go out to our co-workers and introduce yourself as, Hi, my name is, I'm a saint. Most of us would probably not do that. And yet the Bible calls us, once we've been saved, we're saints. Now, years ago, there was a famous uh, Southern Gospel song that talked about, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And, and uh, we're all just sinners. You hear that a lot. We're all just sinners saved by grace. Well, I want to share something with you. Not one time in the scripture, after you have been saved, are you referred to as a sinner. Not one. And I believe this. I think what we tag ourselves at is how we try to live. What we tag ourselves as is how we try to live up to. If we just tell everybody we're just a sinner saved by grace, it gives us a license to go do anything we want to do. So we live that way. But if you're a saint who used to be a sinner, a saint who sometimes sins versus a sinner who is sometimes saintly, Amen? It all has to do with how you present yourself and, and what you're trying to live up to. And so I find it interesting that the word is used. The Greek word is the word hagios. And you might be surprised by this. I don't know. Some of you may be aware of this. It's used in other places. And the same Greek word is translated holy. Paul is writing to the holy ones in Rome. Holy. Hagios. Now, before you say, well, that's not me, I can't be, that's, that's self-righteous, that's pharisaical. Well, let me show you something. I, I find this interesting. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15. We'll read two verses. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Now, if you don't believe that we're supposed to be trying to live up to that, then you need to reach into your Bible and you need to pull that verse of Scripture out of there. Now, I don't really encourage you to do that. I'm just saying that you know as well as I do that if it's said in there, we're supposed to be paying attention to that thing. And this whole concept of I can just live any way, way I want to live, do anything I want to do, and I'm just a poor old sinner saved by grace, that's not what we're supposed to be. 
It's not what our target is supposed to be. Now, it doesn't mean that we're saintly and that we're holy and that we've reached that. The word holy literally means devoted or consecrated to God. That's what it means. So if you want to live like a saint, what it means is you live your life understanding that you have dedicated yourself, you have devoted yourself to the cause of Christ. Now, are you going to be a saint who sometimes sins? Yeah, you are. But to refer to yourself as a sinner all the time is just plain wrong. It's not right. Not if you've been saved. It's just not right. We're supposed to be living at a different pace, if you will. Paul said his horizon, his boundaries were set on that uh, separation. He was dedicated. He was consecrated to the very cause that God had called him to. We're supposed to be the saints of God, the beloved of God, the children of God. Now that means we ought to act a different way. Some of you, I know you had parents like my dad. I've heard stories from you in the past. And when my dad said, I brought you into this world and I can take you out, I believed him. <laughs> and I'm not joking. I mean, I believed him. And I really thought that at times he thought I'd be better off dead than I would in whatever trouble that that thing was going to get me into. And that was the way my dad lived his life. You say you were an abused child. Now you know what's wrong with me. I'm just... <laughs> I may have been, I don't know. I didn't know it at the time. I, I just, I thought I was loved. And, uh, uh, but my point is simply this, that, that, that when it comes down to it, we're children of God. At some time in your life, if you had parents who loved you and tried to guide you, they said something to you like, don't forget whose child you are. Don't forget when you go over there what your name is. Don't bring shame on that. Somewhere in your life you were given guidance that way. What I'm saying to you as your pastor is don't forget whose child you are. You belong to God. If you've been born again, you're His. So let's try to live up to it. Now that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. That's not what I'm saying. Inevitably somebody's going to approach me or at least... Tell somebody else that I said that I'm talking about sinless perfection. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. We got a long way to go before we have to worry about sinless perfection. Amen? Amen. Let's just talk about heading in the right direction. And let's talk about referring to ourselves the right way. I still don't encourage you to tell your coworker you're a saint, but you ought to live up to it somehow. Amen? 1 John chapter 3, I think this is a, a portion that deals with this. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. I want you to stop and think about that for just a minute. You are His. You're His child. He will never disown you. He's never been ashamed of you. Not one day in your life has He ever been ashamed to call you His. Not one single time has the accuser of the brethren ever come before God and pointed a finger at us and caused God to look away and say, yeah, I'm sorry, that one belongs to me. I'm sorry, that's the case. Not one time has that ever happened. On the contrary, he defends us. On the contrary, we have an advocate with his son. Every time the devil accuses us, Jesus steps up and says, wait a minute, I paid for that one. Get off of them. I paid for that one. Don't be bothering them. Don't be talking about my child. Don't be doing that with me. You're a child of God. 
That to me is just incredible. It's remarkable. Behold what manner of love he has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now immediately we need to understand what's being said. If you're going to live like a child of God, it doesn't mean you're going to be real popular in the world you live in. Jesus wasn't. And if they treated him a certain way, why should they treat his children any differently? Amen? Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Somebody put it this way, that I'm not what I used to be, but I'm not what I'm yet going to be. And God's working on us. Indeed, he is. Called to be saints. Paul said this about this group of saints. He said in verse 7 again, to all who are at Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is just a greeting of his to them. Uh, I want you to have God's favor poured out on you, he said. That's what he's saying. I want, I want God's peace in your life. Now, those are two wonderful things. I, I didn't really plan to stop and park on those two things with you, but let me talk about them for just a minute. God's favor and God's peace. What would your day be like if every single day of your life, when you got up, you had God's favor poured on you and God's peace poured on you? I'd say that'd be a pretty terrific day, wouldn't you? Huh? And it doesn't mean that you can't have that. I know the world tends to rob us or try to rob us of those things. But here's what Paul is saying. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse number 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. I thank God for you. Now most of these people he did not know. Some theologians believe that some of them he did know, that some of them were actually some of his converts from other missionary journeys. But Paul had not yet made it to Rome. So a lot of them that he was writing to, he had not yet met. But he had heard about them. I'm not sure what that was, but he had, he had heard about them. And so verse number 8 First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now let's pause there for a moment. That your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. What does that mean to you? Do you realize that when you do things for missionaries, like you do, by the way, ladies, uh, we don't always report this, but your offerings to these missionary wives that you do, they speak about those in a lot of places. They tell people about what you've done. And, and of late, they have been just shy of about $800 every time you have given that offering. Amen. It's been 750 something, 780 something. You ladies are incredible. I mean, just incredible. And what you do not realize is, while the money is awesome for that woman who, who often does without, so that they can get from place to place, what you don't realize is the thing that does the most to them are the hugs and kind words that you share with them. Because they don't often get that. 
Of all the places they go to, they're expected to be there on time. The kids are expected to behave. The last group we had uh, that was with us, a young couple, we were sitting at dinner and they kept apologizing for their children uh, behaving kind of wildly. I knew they had been with the deacon's kids is why they were behaving. I knew that. I knew that. And so I realized what was happening and I just said to the mom, I said, please, let them just be kids. I'm cool with that. It's no problem for me at all. And I happen to know there are pastors that really have a problem with that. They feel like, you know, hey, you got to keep those kids in line. Those kids have been kept in line so much, traveling all over the country. They don't know what's home, what's not home. They've been meeting new kids every week, everywhere they go, three and four times a week. Mission conference here, mission conference there. Been told to be quiet and sit down, do all kinds of stuff. Let them just be kids, man. And my point to you is this. As you love on those missionaries and as you give to them and they go out into other parts of the world, they speak of your faith, of your love, of your kindness. And word begins to get out. And it's an amazing thing. And so here the Bible says, we've heard about you. I hear about you. You're spoken of throughout the whole world. Literally, your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Your faith your faith, your faith. Let me pause a moment and please don't answer this out loud, but think about it. If you could name one thing that East Point was known for throughout the whole world, what would it be? Would it be love? Would it be whatever? Would it be faith? It's interesting to me that what Paul is saying is, you saints over there at Rome, you, you have a reputation. And the reputation is that you guys are people of great faith. It's an amazing thing how you trust God. Now this comes back up as we read because he, he actually says that the just shall live by faith. And so here we have them being known for their faith. For God is my witness, he said whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. I love the way he put that. God is my witness. God knows my heart. God understands where I'm coming from on this. I serve him. And I don't just serve him in my flesh. I serve him with my spirit. I think that's another way of saying with my whole heart, with all that I am, I serve him. And the gospel of his son. Again, we find the gospel popping up. That without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. Now we could pause for a moment here and talk about this. What he's saying is, hey saints, he calls them holy. Hey saints, I know that you are beloved of God. I know that you uh, have been called by Christ. You have a reputation. It's around the whole world. Your reputation is that of great faith. It's an amazing thing. And this is what I do for you. I pray for you. I do not stop praying for you. I have you on my prayer list. I pray for you. I mention you to God. And he said, God is my witness. God is my witness. I don't know what your prayer life is like. I don't know if you have a long list uh, that you go through or if you try to recite it by memory or exactly how you do your prayer life. Maybe you have a prayer journal. A lot of people do that. They write down their prayers and then they go back and they record when God has answered those prayers. And it's a neat thing to do. You ought to intentionally pray, not just haphazardly approach God in prayer. I, I find it interesting that those who do not believe the truth, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ have a more active prayer life. I think about the Muslims who pray five times a day. Is it five times a day? Is that right? Five times a day. And, I'll, and I'll, you say, well, I pray three times. Lord, bless this food. Lord, bless this food. Lord, bless this food. Amen. And if you're eating some junk food, Lord, please change the molecular structure of this crystal hamburger. Some of you probably prayed that prayer. I'm thankful for you. Remarkable testimony. Remarkable people. I pray for you. Verse number 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. I long to see you. What he's saying is some of you I've met before but many of you I've never met. I long to lay eyes on you. I've heard about you. Now I want to see you. I want to be in your presence. I want to get to know you. And then he said so that I can impart some spiritual gift to you so that you will be established. Let me uh, pause a moment and talk about spiritual gifts. That is not number four, but you can write in the word stability. That is number four, the stability. We get that from the word established. Paul said, I want you established. When I started this uh, sermon tonight, this series with you, I mentioned to you that this is a a great discipleship class, and that's what this is. Discipleship helps bring about stability in our life. It grounds us, it establishes us. And no matter how many years you have walked with the Lord, there is always room for us to grow. There's always areas of our life that we can increase in knowledge concerning his word. You will never plunge into the, into the deepest parts of the word. You can get deeper as you go, but there'll always be pieces of it that you've not understood and you need to pick up on. This is one of the reasons why I believe that I don't care who we are, whether you're the pastor or whether you're a, a volunteer working somewhere, we ought to put ourselves under the teaching of the word of God regularly because none of us can say, we know it all. Not one of us can say that. And if you do say it, that's, uh, uh, that's a mistake indeed. So the stability, the stability. And, and I, I gotta tell you, I, I didn't have time in my personal study to look deeper, but I want to, by what Paul meant when he said that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. I know that when he prayed with Timothy and prayed for Timothy, he talks to Timothy, he wrote to Timothy, and he said to him that he would stir up the gift that was in him, that he had as a result of them laying hands on him. Now, I believe this is what happened in that text. I, I'm not, uh, what I'm trying to say is I'm not real sure that the physical laying on of hands brings about some form of activation of spiritual gift. But I do believe this. I do believe that a church has an anointing as well as individuals have an anointing. I do believe that. And I think when a church places their approval on someone and that is done through the laying on of hands or an ordination, for instance, a separating unto the cause of, I do believe there is some sense of a stirring up of that gift, an activation of that gift. I believe the gifts come from the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible teaches, not from man. And so that's why I believe what Paul is saying is not that he actually conveys the gift to you or that he would actually convey the gift to the Romans, but what he's saying is that through my being there with you, there may be some activation of that gift, some stirring up of those gifts. 
Now, when we talk about spiritual gifts, we could do an entire series just on that, couldn't we? So we're going to do that right now. We're going to do an entire series. There are several places in the Bible where spiritual gifts are mentioned. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Actually, there's three different lists given us. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with me for a moment. Would you flip over there? And this is probably as far as we're going to get tonight. So we'll pick up on this thought and then move into chapter 2 after we finish the rest of chapter 1, which is very interesting and very applicable, by the way. The rest of chapter 1, it talks about... Um, uh, I believe uh, homosexuality and the transgender issues and many of the problems that we see in our society today, they're all mentioned right there in Romans chapter 1. And so we will deal with those. We'll talk about those uh, in light of what Paul is saying. But right now, let's go back to this idea of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and if you'll look with me down in verse 4, the Bible says, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For the one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now let me pause for a moment. Again, let's go back a second and take a look at something we read. Notice with me in um, verse number seven and eight, but the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom, and then the list begins. So let's talk about the prophet of all. For instance, a little later on when it became controversial over the subject of tongues, I know a lot of people have gotten mad at me since I've been your pastor. I know you think that's probably very odd and strange. Some of you probably can't believe that. But it's true. People have gotten mad at me. We even had people leave the church because I, I stressed what I believe the Bible to teach about this area of tongues. Now, let me just say it this way. If you understand from the beginning, the whole purpose of the gifts is that all might profit. They're not designed for the profit of one. I hear this repeatedly by people who like to defend the issue of speaking in tongues. Well, it's a personal thing. I don't know of any gift that was designed to be a personal thing. That's contrary to what the Bible says. It's contrary to what we just read. As a matter of fact, later on when Paul deals with the rules of speaking in tongues, he specifically says it would be better to speak so that everybody would understand you than it would to speak in a way that nobody understands you, that only you understand it. It's better to covet the other gifts of speaking that everyone understands. So Paul downplays it but today's society does not downplay it. They elevate it. They, they exalt it. And, and, they, and they focus in on this individual thing. But we just read, they're given for the profit of all, for the edification of the body of Christ. That's why they're given. Now, some of them were used during times that they are no longer needed. Now, that actually becomes quite obvious if you think about it for just a moment. For instance, 
Paul is writing in the, uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. Some of you I know believe that, you know, well, Paul wrote two letters to the church in Corinth. Actually, he wrote three. He talks about another letter that he wrote, and we don't have that one, but that's okay. We believe God gave us what we were supposed to have. But he makes reference to a third book. But the idea behind what I'm trying to tell you is this. He was in the process of writing the Word of God. They didn't have the Word of God. So how was God to speak to them in the New Testament church? Many times he would use the gifts. And in the gifts, you had the word of wisdom. You had the words of knowledge. You had tongues. These are all speaking gifts. Today, they've been modified somewhat because we have the written word of God. Ultimately, what it boils down to, and the clearest explanation I've ever heard, actually read, was from John MacArthur, although I don't agree with everything MacArthur teaches. And this is the problem some pastors have, and myself included. Anytime I quote somebody, I just want you to understand, there's probably a great deal of what that person believes that I don't necessarily agree with. So don't take what I'm about to say as a rubber stamp of approval on everything every preacher says that I ever quote, because that would be a great mistake. So here's what we understand, though. In his little book called Spiritual Gifts, MacArthur talks about the issue of if a person stands and speaks in an unknown tongue and what they say is already in the word of God, there is no need for it. If what they say is not already in the word of God, you must reject it because the Bible says there is no new revelation. Now, I don't know how you can get any plainer than that. That's pretty clear. When I read that, man, I thought, wow, that's so clear. I don't know how anybody can really struggle with that. And still today, people do struggle with that. And so I say to you that things are a little bit different. Word of knowledge today, word of wisdom today. It's not a matter of God said something to me, and so I know your back hurts, and I know you have this headache, and I know you have this problem, and, and that's not what that is. What, what it amounts to is God has given some people an ability to tie together things from the scriptures. Wisdom would be considered counsel. And, and counseling from the scripture where you can bring together thoughts that help people see clearly what, the, what they need to do, what steps they need to take. And then you have people who are very gifted, like John Phillips, for instance, who has written many, many books. He's now with the Lord uh, and did not finish the entire Bible, but he wrote many, many books uh, that were excellent expository type commentaries. That's a, a, a bit of knowledge that God has given to a man who spends his lifetime doing that sort of study and that sort of, so that you and I can benefit from quotes that he might have and some insight that he might give to something rather than us spending days upon days trying to research and find that very thought that you could read about in just a few minutes. And so that may be the case. So some gifts are different. The gift of prophecy for instance, very quickly, ooh, the gift of prophecy. Uh, Thus saith the Lord. In the Old Testament, prophecy was used to talk about things that had happened before, such as the Garden of Eden. That was written from a, a perspective of having never been there, but God revealed it to Moses. This is what God said happened. Prophecy sometimes is futuristic. That's how we usually think of it, but it doesn't have to be futuristic. It can be present day. It can be past. It can be few. It's just a matter of this is what God says. So a modern day gift of prophecy is to be able to take the word of God and say, this is what God says. And to make it clear. 
a clear rendering of thus saith the Lord. Our time is gone. We'll pick up on the spiritual gifts next week. We'll take a deeper look at some of the other lists and then we'll get into the latter part of Romans 1. You're very, very patient with me. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity you've given us to gather tonight. Lord, I pray your blessings on each one as they go their way this evening, Lord. I, I do pray for your favor and your peace to be poured out on each family, each individual tonight. God, we thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to go home and, and read and study and, and look at your word and glean from it the things, the truths, Lord, you'd have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you.